Welcome to the nationally syndicated In the Oil Patch radio show with Kim Bellotto, broadcasting from the Port of Corpus Christi studios. Get more on the Port of Corpus Christi at portofcc.com. In the Oil Patch radio show will give you an inside look at the oil, gas, and energy industry and how it affects you from industry experts and government officials right here on the In the Oil Patch radio show. And now it's time for me to welcome back my guest, Robert Rapier, who is a regular energy expert and a senior contributor for Forbes magazine. Robert, you're also a petroleum engineer by trade. Welcome back to In the Oil Patch radio show. Thanks for having me. So you do a lot of writing for Forbes, oil price. Uh, you're certainly not a newbie when it comes down to oil and gas. Talk to me a little bit about your background of uh, energy, how you have been writing about it for years, your expertise in this area. Okay. So uh, I got a master's degree from Texas A&M in chemical engineering in 1995. And then I went to work in the petrochemical industry. And uh, I worked for a company, a, a major chemical company. It was a uh, German chemical giant called Herxt, H-O-E-C-H-S-T. I worked for them for several years. I went overseas to Germany. Um, and then I came back to the U.S. and I, I took a job with ConocoPhillips. And I worked with ConocoPhillips for a number of years doing R&D, doing refining, and then managing engineers in the North Sea. And that's where I learned, you know, about the oil and gas industry and how it works and so forth and so on. And it was during that time as well that I started to write about energy. And, um, you know, there's a lot of misinformation out there on energy. And it just seems like there's endless debunking that I could do. And so that's what I've spent a lot of time over the years doing is just, you know, somebody will claim something that's just factually incorrect and I will correct it and, and uh, you know, send them to the sources that show, okay, this, this is reality. Mm -hmm. And um, it's amazing. People get angry when they're corrected. Even, you know, you can show somebody something that is absolutely irrefutably true and they'll get angry and start insulting you because, you know, they, they were wrong, but, you know, it's easier to attack the person who uh, corrected them than it is just to admit, yeah, I, I guess I got that wrong. That's why I really enjoy you being on the show with me, because a lot of what you write about is that debunking, as you said, but we're talking about people who are in office, elected office, um, and you really do, these, you know, the general public typically tends to listen to these people as the experts. I don't really understand why, because they've never worked a day in the energy industry themselves, that why they would think that they're the expert, um, and you do really try to sift through, which is so important. That's what we do too, right here on the radio show, as well as Shell Mag. We want to try to bring stories that make sense to help people understand more about energy because it all correlates back to us in one way or another, since we use everything energy in our daily lives, whether it's actual oil and gas or a derivative of it or a byproduct. So let's start with the first debunking. I loved one of your stories. And it was um, right after, if you remember, we had a, the Republican debate not too long ago. And um, after the recent debate, conservative news talk show host Sean Hannity, we're all familiar with him, and governor of California, Gavin Newsom, had some time to talk. And some of the comments that they mentioned were about Mike Pence and um, his energy independence. So Pence said that when Donald Trump was president, he said, we achieved energy independence. 
we became a net, a net exporter of energy for the first time in 75 years. And Pence went on to say or claim that we lost energy independence under the Biden administration. You and I covered this on the last show because that was when you basically corrected Mike Pence as well and addressing that what he had said was misleading on an energy ad that he was creating as he too is running for president. So I want to begin with that. Hannity versus Newsom, debunking the energy independence controversy. You wrote on this in Fox. Tell me about what the problem was that everybody is claiming energy independence or they're claiming that this didn't happen, that didn't happen. Right. Even Sean Hannity was a little bit incorrect on what he was saying about energy independence. Yeah, he was. Yeah. He was incorrect. So, so, so let's start with I, Pence and then maybe we move on to Hannity and, and Newsom. So I, I always tell people, you know, when they talk about energy independence, I say, define that term for me. What do you mean by that? Because there's two ways to think about it. Um, either energy independence means we don't import any energy. And in that case, we haven't been energy independent in more than 70 years because we have imported oil for that entire time, including during the entire duration of Trump's presidency. But if you use it the way Pence used it, net exports. Uh, we, we are a net exporter of energy. So that did happen in 2019 under Trump. Now, I'm very quick to, to point out to people, it didn't happen because of Trump. It happened because of fracking. And if you want to see when the inflection point happened from growing energy imports to shrinking energy imports all the way down to exports, that happened in 2005. The inflection point happened then. And that was because of fracking. And you can draw a line from 2005 down to now 2023, and we've had a steady decline of net energy uh, imports, which in 2019 flipped over and became exports. So I tell people that for one, you know, people will say Trump made us energy independent. And I will say, no, it didn't matter who was in office. You can draw the straight line from 20, 2005 all throughout Obama's term. Our energy imports kept going down and down and down. And it's because fracking kept growing. Well, let me let me have you break this down for our listeners, because actually what occurred, you're, you're going to clarify this, but fracking had begun. Obama was in office. Obama, under his term, actually lifted an export ban that had been in place for 40 years, which is what flipped everything around. So we're talking about Republican, Democrat, different parties. And under them, we are seeing energy exploration, if you will, or a continuing of it here. It's just people don't understand which party. It's actually both parties are responsible for producing our energy, um, exporting or importing energy independence in some ways. They both need to have credit because they both have, have and maybe to the anti-oil and gas, maybe they, you know, instead of just being mad at Republicans, be mad at the Democrats too, because it was under the Obama administration that the uh, lifting of the export ban passed, correct? Correct, but I would say that, uh, so Obama just happened to be in office when fracking really took off. And he was, he didn't, I don't think he wanted to lift the export ban, but Republicans came to him and said, we'll trade you a lifting of the export ban for uh, passing your priorities on renewable energy. And so he made a deal. And that deal, you know, it, it's possible that we would have run up against uh, constraints as we continue to increase oil production that would have kept us from technically becoming 
net energy exporters. But the fact that we could now start exporting oil meant that shale production could continue to grow. Um, and, you know, on that theme, pe people ask me, you know, why, it, why do we import any energy when we're exporting energy? I say because it's, <laughs> it's, it's a, so the energy we're exporting is not as good a fit for our refineries right. as the energy we're importing. That doesn't mean it won't work at all. Um, you know, I used to work in a refinery. We could run light oil through that refinery, but the economics weren't as good as running heavy oil. So if we have a producer of oil right next door to us and they're producing light oil and they want, you know, $80 a barrel for that oil, or we can get oil from Canada that's heavy sour oil that's $40 a barrel, we're going to take that deal, even though, yeah, question? Question. How how important in your mind was it that the export ban was lifted, considering all these other things that have rolled out since that? And if we just look at Ukraine and Russia, we are providing our allies in Europe a lot of natural gas and other countries as well. Had we not had that ban lifted, we wouldn't we wouldn't be in this position to do that and to help them. So how important in your mind was it that we, you know, wound up lifting it, not really realizing how important it would be in the future for world security and when we look talk about energy? Well, it allowed the U.S. to play a role, you know, in, in uh, global energy supplies that we hadn't been able to play before. Uh, we could export natural gas, but nobody ever thought we would produce enough natural gas to actually be an exporter of natural gas. But oil, the export ban had been in place for a long time. It doesn't really make any sense uh, except for, you know, trying to protect, protect U.S. consumers. But, you know, a, a U.S. oil producer would say, why can't I export my oil? You know, anybody else can make whatever they want. They can export it. They can import. And you're restricting me from being able to export oil. So it was very important. It uh, eliminated a potential constraint that we were going to run up against. But back to my previous point, if if the export ban hadn't been lifted, we would have seen prices start to become depressed in U.S. WTI crudes uh, because it can't get to world market. And so you would see refiners that become more attractive to refiners. And you might still see the U.S. become, you know, energy independent because we're still exporting coal and we're exporting natural gas. It's just that oil wouldn't be playing a part of that. We'd be producing the, we'd be refining the oil that we produce. It's just the, the lifting of the export ban made it easier. So I want to get back to the original question, which is, so Mike Pence, we've already gone through that one on another show of you and you wrote about it at Forbes too, about Mike Pence's comments were not quite correct. But I want to jump into in this segment too, a little bit about what happened between after the the uh, Republican debate, Hannity and and Newsom kind of went at it, and you're debunking that too. Tell me what happened. So Hannity said uh, Donald Trump made us energy independent, and I said why that's not correct. He was he was driving the driving a car when we got to energy independence, but we were going to get there anyway. But then he said, and then we lost that under Biden. Well, that's that's not true. So we are a 2022. We exported the largest amount of energy in U.S. history. So you're saying we became a net energy exporter under Trump and therefore we're energy independent. That has only grown in the last two years. It grew in 2021. It grew in 2022. So and Hannity was saying, no, that's not correct. That's not correct. And then um, uh, Newsom said Google 5.94 quads. 
And if you Google that, one of the articles you'll find is my article from Forbes back in May, where I explain all this. And I said, um, you know, by the measure of net energy exports being the measure of energy independence, we've been at the highest level of energy independence in at least 70 years and, and probably forever. Um, I don't think we've ever exported 5.94 quads of energy, and that's going to grow this year. And we're going to set a new oil production record this year. So um, the, the Republicans are making a strategic mistake, I think, in trying to attack Biden on the uh, on the energy independence issue, because in black and white, that's not correct. Now, what you could say is Biden hasn't been friendly to the oil industry. And I would say that's absolutely true. Um, you could say that we might be producing even more oil if he if he hadn't been, you know, the way he was toward the toward the energy industry. And I would say that's probably true. Uh, but most of the decisions he's making right now are not going to impact oil production for another, you know, four to eight years. Well, that's what I want to talk about. Let's take a quick break. You're listening to In the Old Patch Radio Show. We'll be right back. And we're back. You're listening to In the Old Patch Radio Show. My guest today is Robert Rapier, a regular contributor uh, here on In the Old Patch Radio Show, as well as a senior contributor with Forbes magazine. Robert, before the break, I asked you to, to to tell me a little bit about an article that you wrote for Forbes. It was titled Hannity versus Newsom, Debunking the Energy Independent Controversy. And I had to go to break. So I want to give that back to you because there's there's great confusion when we talk about parties and where are they at in the energy independence. And I'm glad you clarified that the Biden administration does seem to have a real problem with the energy industry. Not all of it, but he loves green. He's got his his favorites, we can see solar and wind, but he doesn't seem to be a fan of oil and gas. So was uh, Gavin Newsom correct or was Sean Hannity correct when they were debunking or you were debunking that I think probably you're claiming that Newsom was the one that was correct and Sean Hannity was incorrect when we're talking that's, about that. That is, that's correct. So what Newsom said was correct. Sean Hannity said a couple of things in that segment that were correct. Uh, he said something to the effect that uh, Biden has declared war on the oil industry or something. And you could say, yeah, that's probably correct. I now, would agree. <laughs> if, if, I'm, if, if I'm Biden, though, I'm pointing to the bottom line and said, well, we must be doing something right because we're going to set an oil production record this year. And that's where Republicans have to be careful in attacking him, uh, especially over energy independence, because the numbers are there. And this is where Hannity was wrong. And I would point out, Hannity has cited me as a credible source of information. He cited me on his show before on a, on a topic on, uh, on carbon emissions. So, um, but in this case, he is absolutely wrong. And if I could sit down with Hannity, I would say, how are you defining energy independence? And I think he wouldn't know. I think he's just repeating things that he's heard. And he's, he's just saying things, but there's no factual basis to uh, what he's saying. Now, there were different segments. My understanding is there were different segments on gasoline prices in California and and other things where Hannity may have made some some points, but in that particular segment on energy independence, um, he was he was absolutely wrong when he he contradicted Gavin Newsom. Gavin Newsom said we we were the largest energy exporter had, had the largest energy exports in history in 2022, and, and Hannity was going no no that's not true that's not true it is true. So we've had. <laughs> Some errors coming out from uh, or what appears to be a little misleading ads from uh, Mike Pence, uh, now Sean Hannity. And it, and it leads me to say that, you know, our show, 
is popular. Um, it's hard to break down energy in a way that most people consume it and can understand it because it's very complicated. Um, there's a lot of different moving parts and factors every day. And just, just when yesterday was one way, today you can wake up and something's completely different, like Russia invades Ukraine and there's a new set of rules and a new something different is going to be happening with energy, energy prices globally, worldwide. There's importing, exporting. There's just a lot. And that's why I love having you on the show, because you really kind of break through and tell things, but you're not sitting on the side of I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, or I'm an independent. You're just kind of setting the story straight on energy. So let's right. let's switch gears and let's drive into, we seem to be having a rally towards $100 uh, a barrel pricing point. So um, after dropping below $70 a barrel in early summer, the price of West Texas crude has been increasingly higher as, as we've seen through the summer. And actually now we've come out at about $90 a barrel for the first time this year. doesn't seem to be any signs that it's going to slow down. And I guess I want you to explain, um, you know, why is that in the way of, and what can we expect? This might go into break and then come back from it, because I think there's a lot here to discuss. Uh, one of your articles talks about it's not just the price. You have to think about what OPEC is doing. You have to think about what's there's a lot of different moving pieces. I want you to bring that in. Are we going to see $100 a barrel for oil between now and the end of the year? That's the first question. And if so, okay. why? Okay. So I think uh, lately oil prices have started to soften a little bit. I, I don't know if we'll get to $100, but the the supply-demand constraints are there to make that happen. It all depends on OPEC. Um, we could get to $100 oil if OPEC decided that's where we need to be. And, um, you know, the problem is U.S. is a major oil producer, but we're also a major oil consumer. And when Biden drained our strategic petroleum reserve, he took away one of the handles that we have for trying to manage short-term oil prices. And I said at the time, the risk is we deplete the strategic petroleum reserve and OPEC just makes production cuts uh, to offset that. And that's what they've done. Mm -hmm. So OPEC is very much in the driver's seat at this point on oil prices. Now, the fact that we're driving, it's funny. You know, you might say, if Biden has been hostile to the oil industry, why are we going to set an oil production record this year? Well, it's because of high oil prices. So I, the point I would make there is high oil prices have a much bigger impact on oil production than anything a president does. Um, pre presidential policies uh, can can impact oil, you know, further down the road. But in the short term, oil prices have a much bigger impact, and um, that's one of those macro factors that's going on right now. Creeping higher oil prices, oil producers are producing as much as they can, and um, you know, the oil industry itself, you know, they complain about you know what Biden's done and cutting off production and all this stuff. The bottom line is they are profiting handsomely at uh, $90 oil. So on the one hand, high gasoline prices hurt Biden with the consumer, um, and, and that's going to hurt his reelection, but they're making the oil industry a lot of money. So you're saying it's it's OPEC. How much of what's happening globally is also a problem, like um, Russia invading Ukraine? That's been tightening supply, right? Is that also coming in to play a factor as well? So I, I, always, higher? I always tell people to understand what's happening, you have to go all the way back to the COVID uh, crash in 2020. 
we were producing record amounts of oil in 2020 and then COVID hit and U.S. production fell by 3 million barrels a day. And that's because we had all the stay-at-home orders and, and oil demand plummeted. The price of WTI closed negative. Um, it was a crazy time. But then demand rebounded faster than supply could come back online. Because when you shut in some of those small stripper wells, they're shut in for good. That's, there, there's no bringing them back. Um, and, and, that, and, and some producers went out of business. And that production may not be coming back. And so what we saw then was a steady climb. We saw a very quick rebound in demand and a much slower rebound in supply. And that drove oil prices high. Uh, you know, people talk about, you know, I wish we'd get back to $2 a gallon gasoline when Trump was in there. The only time gasoline went to $2 a gallon is when, when demand collapsed because of COVID. Robert, let's take a quick break. When we return, right. I want to get back on the topic. You're listening to an Oil Patch Radio show. We'll be right back. Attention small and medium-sized business owners. Are you feeling overwhelmed with back office tasks like payroll, workers' compensation, federal regulations, safety laws, employment standards, and benefits? Don't worry, Unique HR has your back. For over 30 years, our team of qualified professionals has been providing people-centered solutions to help businesses like yours navigate the heavy burden of running a business and managing their workforce. We're the PEO with a pulse, and we are just a phone call away. Call us today at 361-852-6392. Unique HR, the partner you can trust and we're back you're listening to in the oil patch radio show my guest today is robert rapier senior contributor with forbes magazine as well as a regular energy expert on our show robert you were talking to us about are we going to see a hundred dollar per barrel price by the end of the year you said we've got to go back to covid and when supply demand just dropped off then we reopened and a lot was not able to come back on. And right. so, you know, we see that fluctuation keep going because I, I was asking okay. you about the tightening. Yeah. So once once supply um, once supply started trying to come back, but demand came back faster, we saw oil prices starting to increase in about summer 2020. And that price increase lasted through the rest of Trump's term. It lasted through Biden's first year. And then you, uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. And so that we, we made a decision. We said we're not going to import Russian oil or finished products. Well, we were importing Russian finished products. And so that came off the market. That disrupted the market. That sent oil prices above $100 a barrel. It sent gasoline prices higher. And, and that was the final factor that really pushed oil prices on up. And then Biden decided to tap the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Now, you could argue that this helped stop oil, the oil price rise because he dumped a bunch of supplies on the market. But that's a one-time thing. And over time, you start to deplete the strategic petroleum reserve, you've got less of a handle to control prices. And I, I've always said, that's not the purpose of that. The purpose of that is if there's a war or something that cuts us mm -hmm. off from global supplies, we've got enough to you know, supply our, de our defense and, and things like that. And so but politicians have always played games with it though. Um, but you get end up with a situation like we have now, which is now we have a depleted strategic petroleum reserve, and OPEC has set back, and and you know OPEC is the world's you know leading exporter of oil. They export most of the world's oil, and they sit back and say, okay, the U.S. cannot respond now the way they could, and so we're going to cut production. We're going to take the production off the market that the U.S. dumped onto the market, and we're going to get a handle back on oil prices, and that's what happened. Um, the the 
dumping of the strategic petroleum reserve helped break that $100 oil and send it all the way down to 70. But now that's over. And so uh, OPEC is back in the driver's seat. And what happens with oil going forward here is going to be very much dependent on what OPEC does. U.S. production is going to continue to grow for a little while longer, but it can't grow fast enough to meet demand. And that puts OPEC in the driver's seat and Russia. Well, in a, in a recent article you wrote you, uh, titled Rising Price, Rising Oil Prices Threaten Economic Stability. I want you to cover that, too, because you're pretty much saying in this article that uh, the U.S. production, we're getting ready to enter in a slow season, and the administration is 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 limited on what they can do um, in the way of, uh, they can't obvious, he can't obviously tell OPEC plus what to do and their decisions, but how much is, how much of what their decisions OPEC plus makes are going to affect us here and his reelection process right. as we're moving into the lower demand season? What can we expect? So the other thing you have to take into consideration is who does Russia and Saudi Arabia want to see as president? And they are in the position to hurt Biden. And mm -hmm. I think they probably will use that to hurt Biden. And so I think in this last year, the Biden administration, we're going to see oil prices elevated and we're going to see OPEC and we're going to see Saudi Arabia and Russia doing all they can to put the screws on the U.S. and make it painful. And because, you know, it's hard to get reelected if gas prices are very high and Russia knows that and Saudi Arabia knows that. And I think they're going to put the screws on the U.S. and uh, tighten supply up and cause some pain for U.S. consumers. And that's one of the issues that really causes people to vote out the incumbents. You know, you get high gasoline prices and now our, our crippled ability to be able to respond to that. I mean, when you want to be able to respond to it, if you're sitting in Biden's chair, when you want to be able to respond to it is in the last year of his term when he's running hard for reelection. And now he's taken that away from himself. So. You know, he can't really respond to that. And uh, that means Russia and Saudi Arabia is going to have a lot to say about the election and, and who, who wins the election. Yep. Let's take a quick break. When we return, I want to get back on that topic because it's not just gas prices we're dealing with, Robert. There's a lot of high prices on everything. And, uh, of course, energy is driving a lot of it. But let's take a quick break. You're listening to Annual Patch Radio Show. We'll be right back. In the oil and gas industries, you don't just need a workers' comp provider. You need a workers' comp provider who understands your business. That's Texas Mutual Insurance Company. At Texas Mutual, they've created the Texas Oil and Gas Association Safety Group exclusively for businesses involved with exploration and production. That means you'll have access to information and safety resources that fit the way you work. But the advantages don't stop there. As a safety group member, you'll receive a premium discount on your workers' comp. Plus, you can qualify for double dividends. You heard that right. Members can earn an additional dividend on top of the one you receive as a policyholder. It's all part of Texas Mutual's commitment to working as a partner with the businesses that keep our state running. Texas Mutual and the Texas Oil and Gas Association, two great organizations that are even better together. To see if you qualify to become a safety group member, go to texasmutual.com TXOGA. And we're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. My guest today is Robert Rapier, senior contributor with Forbes magazine, as well as a regular energy expert here on our show. Robert, you know, you were talking about how these other countries have a vested interest in making sure that Biden does not get elected. 
I think there's a lot of people in the United States too, especially if you're in the oil and gas industry who would welcome that as well, uh, seeing how he's had a lot of unfavorable policies towards oil and gas. And a lot of them are, don't make sense to me, but you know, this is why I'm a host and I don't work in the energy industry. Like, you know, he's, he seems to be picking winners and losers in uh, offshore leases. He canceled um, Alaskans, uh, Alaska's federal, uh, there's a lot he's doing that to me does not make sense. And I want to try to break that down and try to get a handle on why is this happening besides the fact that he just really probably wants to do away with coal, oil, natural gas, and we're going to use solar and wind who, to me, they're not quite reliable just yet. Nothing against them, but I don't see them currently being the solution in their form. So let's switch. And I mean, I want to give it back to you. How much of what's happening right now with um, his policies, things that are happening with OPEC, things that are happening uh, in our economy, everything is up from gas prices, food prices, restaurant prices, everything is extremely high. Your, your utility bills are high. How well uh, do you see this administration being able to recover and react from uh, a lot of, uh, I think it's, it seems like the roosters are coming home to roost now on him and Here's the, the party. Here's the problem with inflation. So the, the major driver of inflation has been the shortages that happened uh, during COVID, and that's driven inflation. And the oil price rise has been, I think, the single largest driver of inflation across the economy. These interest rate hikes don't really impact oil prices. And so under normal circumstances, if you just say inflation's running hot, um, okay, higher interest rates may help tame that. And in fact, inflation has peaked and is headed back down, but that was mainly because oil prices headed back down. That oil prices helped help move inflation back down. And now that we've got oil prices moving back up, core inflation is probably going to head back up. And rising interest rates aren't going to really impact this, and that's the catch-22 that they've got. Um, but back on one other point I was going to make on the oil industry, it's, it's kind of ironic. Um, on the one hand, high oil and gas prices they hurt the consumer, and, and the consumer's not going to vote to reelect Biden if, if gasoline prices are back, you know, 4 or $5 a gallon. And the oil industry doesn't like the policies that Biden has passed, but they made more money in two years under Biden than they did in four years under Trump. And that's, that's because oil prices were so high and gasoline prices were so high. So I've said yeah. they ought to send a thank you note to Biden and say, you know, despite your hostility toward us, um, you know, you've helped you've been drive, good for business. <laughs> you've been good for business. Um, you know, and so we, you know, we wish you had policies that let us produce more, but the fact that you haven't uh, has helped prop prices up. Well, speaking about how things don't quite always make sense on the front end, as you're looking at it and you're like, wait, what? California, you wrote an article a couple of weeks back, California's lawsuit against oil giants. Is it righteous or ridiculous? What was that story about? Because we always hear about California and they have the strangest policies when it comes down to like fossil fuel demand, but yet they still use fossil fuels. And so I'm trying to understand, um, your article just kind of talks about how California's, I, I, I'll let you tell me about California, yeah, so your article lawsuit it, it, against the oil giants. Where are they going with this? So there's a great level of hypocrisy here. I mean, mo most people 
may not realize that California has been one of the major oil producing states over the last hundred years. Um, you know, they've been forever. They were top five or top two in oil production. Uh, very major oil producer. California made a lot of money off of producing oil. They uh, made a lot of taxes. They ran their economy on oil. All of these things, um, and so they profited, you know, quite a bit on on oil. Now, California's made the decision they're going to try to move to renewables as much as possible. And reality is, you know, carbon emissions go up and up and up, and nobody wants to be responsible for that. Everybody would like to blame that on big oil, and and nobody more so than California. Um, so California decides, hey, ExxonMobil lied to us about carbon emissions, and therefore. Uh, we're going to sue them for the damage that has been done. Well, the fact is, the scientific papers have been warning about rising carbon emissions for years and years. California can't say, we didn't know we were relying on ExxonMobil uh, for, for our information. ExxonMobil, within ExxonMobil, they're, they're debating this. They're discussing it. Some, some scientists are going, hey, this could be a real problem. And some are going, I disagree. I don't think it's going to be that much of a problem. And California latches on to those internal debates and says, aha, they knew. They didn't know. They didn't have a crystal ball. Some of them may have thought, hey, this is going to be a real issue. But California, at the same time, they've got access to the scientific literature where, where people are making the case, hey, rising carbon emissions are going to be a problem. But here's the other thing. How much did California benefit from the oil they produced? Um, you know, they, they, they developed their economy on oil. The, the, the state became mobile on oil. And to this day, they're highly dependent on oil. They are more dependent than any other state on foreign oil. And I pointed that out a few years ago. And the irony is they've made it harder to produce oil in California. And at the same time, that has increased their dependence on OPEC for, for their oil. And a lot of people don't realize that, just how dependent California is on the Middle East. Um, but California has benefited tremendously over the years. So if you're going to say, hey, we're going to sue the oil companies for the damage done by climate change. Then you have to take into consideration, okay, well, what about the benefits that Californians realized from using oil over the years? Because it hasn't all been bad. You know, imagine that they didn't have any oil. What would they have done? Well, they couldn't have even developed if they didn't have oil. They couldn't have been mobile. They couldn't have flown. They couldn't have commuted. You know, California is a major commuter state. Um and, and people get this fantasy in their mind that, oh, well, we would have developed electric vehicles faster. And, and I don't think there's any basis, in fact, to support that. Um, it's, it's just, this is politics at its worst right here. It's, you know, blaming somebody else for choices that we made that actually benefited all of us. Um, you know, if you try yes. to imagine oil out of your life, you'd have a re really difficult life. And in fact, if the oil industry had come along, the population of the earth would be much lower. M most of us wouldn't have been born. And, and so we want to blame the oil industry for climate change and while ignoring all the benefits that happened uh, as a result of, of uh, you know, the oil industry. I'm so glad you said that because I think that the average person does not really think about that. It's like you use it every day to get to work. You're in a car. You're using make What everything you're using is using this. And um, to think that these are the people who have no solutions, but say, we've got to get off of it. That's fine. If we've got to get off of it, can you give us a solution? And, and there isn't really a magic bullet here. So when we get back from break, we are an energy show. I want to talk about solar and wind and outpacing hydropower. We've got to take a quick break. You're listening to an old patch radio show. We'll be right back.
Any business can benefit from advertising to the oil and gas industry, but it's really important to partner with a marketing company that has a proven track record with this growing industry. Shale Oil and Gas Business Magazine is the one-stop shop that'll keep you in front of the customers that you need to grow your business. So let's start growing your business in Texas. Email us, info at shalemag.com. Again, that's info at shale, S-H-A-L-E, mag, M-A-G, dot com. Or you can call us, 210-240-7188. Again, that's 210-240-7188. And we're back. You're listening to In the Wolf Patch Radio Show. My guest today is Robert Rapier, a senior uh, Forbes contributor as well as a regular energy expert here on the show. Robert, we've talked a lot about oil and gas. Um, thank you for debunking uh, elected officials, uh, major media heads on what really is going on in oil and gas. And it tells us that don't listen and don't believe every single thing you hear. Um, you really need to do your research. But now, A lot of people just say things. I mean, I've seen that. A lot yeah. of people just say things and they say them with confidence and you go, okay, well, that sounds about right. Um, but you got you to gotta do the research. Yeah. Well, that's why I'm a talk show host and not an expert. That's why you all are here <laughs> to, to explain it to us. But let's let's switch gears. You uh, recently wrote an article on um, the new energy era, which, of course, we all have heard solar and wind is the solution for replacing a good old oil and natural gas. But it's now, your article says, solar and wind is outpacing hydropower. So we have heard and we do see that there's so much going into solar and wind. Um, a lot of the IRA, the Inf Inflation Reduction Act, had a lot of money in there to, to grow these. Um, and definitely, I would say that it seems as though our elected officials want to give money to help grow solar and wind. But for the first time, you're saying we're seeing hydropower out, face, uh, out even pace solar and wind. There's listeners, trust me, that don't really know what hydropower is. So let's start with that. Um, and then how is it outpacing solar and wind? So, so solar and wind are outpacing hydropower. So what, what's happened is hydropower is electricity from dams across the, across the country. So that has been a very mature area for a long time. Um, hydropower has produced, uh, I don't remember the number, 20% of our electricity or something for, for a long, long time. And, and it's, there's not much growth there because there aren't a lot of sites left where you can put in a dam and create a lake and, and produce hydropower. Now, solar and wind have been growing at double-digit rates for you know the past 15 years or something. So they finally produced more of our electricity than hydropower uh, for the first time since, uh, last year. And I think they outpaced nuclear the year before that. Um, so that they're growing very, very rapidly, but they're going to reach a point here. Well, growth growth is slowing down. And um, there was a major news story at the end in late September where one of the major renewable energy producers, NextEra Energy Partners, announced that they were going to have to cut their distribution uh, to investors in half because they could foresee growth slowing down. And one of the major factors there, well, two, two major factors, one is higher interest rates. These are capital intensive businesses and they have to go out and they have to raise money and high interest rates are killing them. That's one thing. The other is that uh, ESG investing, the investing in green uh, stuff is, is sort of softened in the past three or four months. And in the wake of the Next Era Energy Partners uh, announcement, their stock price got cut in half. Um, it's it's gone down by about fifty percent since um, you know September the twenty fifth or something. That's when the announcement was made. And Next Era Energy, which is the largest publicly traded utility in the world and owns Next Era Energy Partners, 
uh, owns a, a, a substantial fraction of it and is their sponsor, um, they've seen their own share price drop by more than 20%. And uh, the utility sector was the worst performing sector in Q3. And that's the main reason why. The, the renewables companies that are heavily reliant on renewables did very poorly in Q3. And, uh, you know, it's high, inter high interest rates and it's, uh, you know, this uh, growing skepticism about ESG investing. Well, you know, I don't, and I apologize to the listeners. I need to correct that. I, I read it wrong. Your article did say wind and solar outpacing hydropower. So it, cleaning that up. But, you know, I had Harold Ham on the show a couple of weeks back or maybe a month or so, and he was discussing ESG and he, he really was very strong. He felt very strongly about that ESG is going to become uh it's going to slowly go somewhere and die and because of the economics of it. And I'm hearing you say that now solar and wind are kind of maybe reaching, would you say a, a peak or not really having the ability to grow because of what you said, the it's going uh, to slow down. It's, yeah. down. It, it's not a peak, but I, you know, I do think eventually uh, solar will supply us with most of our energy, but it's going to take a while. I mean, I, I wrote an article in 2007 and I said, in the long run, ultimately, mm -hmm. all of our energy, practically all of it comes from the sun. And in the long run, but it's a very long run, uh, solar is going to provide most of our energy. Uh, but we're not anywhere close to that yet. Um, you know, in primary energy, right. still fossil fuels are pr provide more than 80% of the world's primary energy. And so that's a great entry for me to say. I want you to kind of give us an idea of... I don't think I've heard anybody say we do not want solar or wind. I've not heard anybody say that. It's more of it's not their. Well, time I have heard just... people say that. I've heard people say, "Hey, these big wind projects are causing issues." Um, I, I, I do know people who have campaigned against uh, wind projects in in their area because you know they they create noise and they kill birds. So so I have heard people coming out against them. I, I I I agree with you on that. I have heard not that they don't want them. It's just there's still some issues, but there's issues with everything, no matter what energy source. There's no free lunch. There is no free yes. lunch. So so that being said, wind do there's a problem with storage of what they're collecting from wind and solar. So when do you see more or less, or when do you think more or less that we will see true um benefit from utilizing solar and wind in the future that we will go to really starting to get off because I interviewed a guest the other day, Art, and he was like, Kim, all we're doing is adding to the grid. He said, Art, and do you want to watch that show? I think it was uh, Berman. And oh, I know Art. I know Art. Art and I have yeah, he was some time great. together. Yeah, he was yeah. great, but he said, you know, the problem is, is that we just keep adding more into the grid. We're not really, so we're adding in now solar and wind and nuclear, but we're not getting off any of them. We're just continuing to replace them. But the trick is, is to start taking them offline, some of these, and that we're not able to do that because right. obviously we, oh, we have overall a energy, Overall <laughs> energy demand keeps growing and, and, and the renewables yes. haven't managed to even keep pace with that. I, I did an extrapolation. I, I think over the past 10 years, I looked at uh, how much of an impact renewables have made in the overall energy mix. I extrapolated and I said, at this rate, it's going to take 200 years before renewables can replace fossil fuels. Um, you know, it's it's not a it's not a quick fix. It's um, you know, if if we were putting, years. yeah, it was it was two hundred years because it, it had gone. I, I don't remember the numbers. I, I think in ten or fifteen years, uh, fossil fuels had only dropped. You know, a, a very few percent. And I said, you know, if you if you look at that rate that they've dropped over the past ten or fifteen years, and 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 this has been the fastest growth rate of renewables that you're going to see. Um, it, it would take 200 years to, to phase fossil fuels completely out. 
I don't know about you, but that makes my head spin to think that we might spend another 200 years arguing about energy resources and political debates pertaining to this as opposed to trying to find solutions. But I guess that's what we're going to be looking <laughs> looking uh, towards in the future. Robert, that is all the time that we have for the show. Thank you for coming on, talking to us a little bit about what you've been working on. Keep up the good work of debunking and helping us understand energy and how it applies to our daily lives. Thank you so much. Anybody who wants to look you up, where do they go to look you up and uh, ask you questions about maybe the show, things you're working on? So, um, I, and, and you heard it here first, we're going to set a new old production record this year. Uh, we still got the whole fourth quarter ahead of us, but we will set an oil production record this year. Under and the Biden administration. <laughs> under the Biden administration. And I will write about that in early January, as soon as the numbers are in. I mean, it, it may be locked in by late December, and I'll write an article then. But you'll find me on Forbes. That's where most of the breaking energy news stuff I post there first. Um, I also write for Investing Daily, but that's about, you know, the utilities that I mentioned. And, um, you know, we, we do cover energy and we have energy recommendations there. But for most viewers who are just interested in oil production and the energy sector, uh, Forbes is where you're going to find, you know, my most current stuff. So you Google my name, Robert Rapier and Forbes, and you'll find me. Very good. Robert, thank you again for coming back on the show. We look forward to having you back on soon. Thank you. In the Oil Patch is where together we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bellotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch.